Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you for coming to our last panel called Human Security in the Middle East. We have four speakers for this panel, and I'm going to introduce uh, our speakers at once in the start. And our first uh, speaker is Gillian Schwedler from Hunter College. And Gillian Schwedler is a professor of political science at the City University of New York's Hunter College and the Graduate Center. She's the author of the award-winning Faith in Moderation, Islamist Parties in Jordan and Yemen, and co-editor co of Policing and Prisons in the Middle East. And our second speaker is Marina Ottawa from Wood Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. And Marina Ottawa is a Middle East scholar at the Wilson Center in Washington, DC. She's working on a book analyzing the significant and often unintended changes that have followed the Arab uprisings. I'm sure they haven't listed all of your books here because of the <laughs> space limitations. Uh, our third uh, speaker is Lori Brand from University of Southern California. And Lori Brand is the Robert Granford Wrights Professor of International Relations and Middle East Studies at the University of Southern California here in Los Angeles. She's the author of Citizens Abroad, States and Migration in the Middle East and North Africa, and Official Stories, Politics and National Narratives in Egypt and Algeria. Her current research interests include state expatriate relations, the politics of academic freedom, and national narrative construction. And our final speaker is Sherin Hamdi from the University of California, Irvine. And Sherin Hamdi is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of California, Irvine. She is co-author of the anthropological graphic novel, Lisa, a story of friendship, medical promise, and revolution. So join me in welcoming our speakers. Uh, thank you. I'm uh, honored to be here. I'm thrilled to be here with this uh, great, great group, and the conversation has been really wonderful, and I'm um, grateful for you all still being here at the last session of the panel, so thanks for that. Um, <clears throat> the impetus behind the notion of human security is the laudable desire to prioritize human needs over the needs of national or state security. State security is about making the state itself secure including from its own citizens, from other populations inside its borders, and from populations outside of its borders trying to get in, to name just a few. In many of the core statements on human security, particularly from UN leaders such as Kofi Annan, the goal has been to shift debates about security from state-level institutions to the level of the individual. Issues such as poverty, healthcare, shelter, education, climate change, and displaced or transient persons, to name just a few, all fall under the rubric of human security. Because this normative concept emerged from the policy community, the abiding question in many of these debates resolves, revolves around policy prescriptions. How do we increase human security? I'll bracket for now who we is, but the how is largely framed in terms of development. The question then becomes, how can we prioritize human development over state security? While this framework challenges the prioritization of state sovereignty and security over the, individual needs, the needs of individual humans, it also reproduces market logics and neoliberal modes of legality. Human security aims to increase individual personal security and lifehood 
achieved through, are achieved through development. Again, this is a welcome shift from notions of state securitization through weapons and technologies of control, coercion, and repression, but not altogether an unproblematic one. That is, in the quest to shift attention away from political elites who set the agenda for what counts as the security of the nation, we should be cautious of adopting a framework of development as the logical and sole means of improving the human condition because of the neoliberal market logics that so of themselves are central to that problem. In my chapter, I aim to more fully develop this idea and connect it to debates about neoliberal development projects that aim to reshape the built environment. This is a new angle for me, so I invite you to help me think through what insights we can gain through this approach. The notion of the right to the city brings forth a precise point of tension and conflict where the individual encounters expensive real estate, luxury urban projects, and new infrastructures of securitization that themselves, help, that themselves aim to shape the flow of people and how they utilize public and private spaces. David Harvey builds on the ideas of Henri Lefebvre in an effort to explore the right to the city as a kind of collective communal right of people, specifically those not located at the top of political, economic, and social hierarchies. Here we find questions of poverty, health, employment, and shelter coming into view as individuals engage with and traverse the built environment. That is, there's a materiality to the ways in which various populations are included and excluded via the built environment's imagining of the correct or ideal ways that individuals should populate spaces and enclosures. I hope my work will help us to explore these uneven geographies of urban space and the ways in which different projects of urban renewal, not all of them are state-led, but they still often prioritize projects that exacerbate the plight of poor and working class citizens and expose them to new surveillance and securitization routines, rendering them uh, more rather than less vulnerable. I need my voice just to last another 12 minutes and I'm good. Okay, the regime of Jordan's King Abdullah II, like that of his father, has prioritized neoliberal projects in Amman aimed at attracting foreign capital and creating desirable upscale urban spaces of the sort necessary to attract even more international capital. The regime has in no way ignored middle or working class neighborhoods, and yet even many of those projects have resulted in the destruction of housing, open spaces, local markets, and informal transportation hubs in favor of more expensive international supermarkets and integrated transit infrastructure intended to move citizens quickly around the city via particular routes. This is not a new insight. Scholars such as James C. Scott and many others have long examined how mega projects intended to improve the human condition have produced negative effects. To be sure, some of these projects do improve human security for some segments of the population, but they simultaneously worsen life chances for many others, and usually the most vulnerable. In Jordan, key challenges for these urban renewal projects include the rapid population growth among the poorest, combined with numerous flows of refugees into the capital since 2004. Iraqi and, Iraqi and Syrian populations, who aren't going anywhere anytime soon, have settled in various locations across the city and have no intention of leaving. They put significant strains on local services and infrastructure while exacerbating tensions among residents and communities. My chapter grows out of my current book project, Protesting Jordan, uh, which examines the ways in which protests are a key site for the articulation and circulation of narratives about the Hashemite regime and its authority to rule including calling that authority into question. In one chapter, I explore in details the ways in which a dramatic expansion of Amman over the past century created new spaces available for protest, 
spaces adjacent to the office of the Prime Ministry at the Fourth Circle, the Professional Association Complex in Shmesani, Gamal Abdel Nasser Circle, circle known as Dakhiliya, and so on. At the same time, other spaces of protest, such as the old downtown or Wustel Belid, have either disappeared or simply become less visible and protests there are less disruptive. My book does not take up the question of human security, but many of the urban changes I examine uh, in that project have created obstacles and hardships for Amman's lower classes. And so it's these projects and Jordanian regime's efforts to resist, and Jordanian's efforts to resist or undo them that I examine in detail in this chapter. Alterations to Amman's geography emerged through the creation of entirely new neighborhoods and commercial spaces uh, for the and the repurposing of other neighborhoods. The six major downtown, the six major ur urban planning projects for the city, the first one dating to 1952 and drawn up by British urban planners, imagined entirely new neighborhoods, public spaces, modes of transport, uh, patterns of leisure activities, and bridges creating a ring road around the downtown area so you didn't have to go down the, you know, to the Wadi and back up again. Most of those plans were only partially realized at best, but each of them entailed a dimension of militarization. So as Leopold Lambert argues, quote, the very act of designing, whether it's an object, a building, or a city, resembles the function of the army in the way that they fundamentally anticipate and encourage specific behaviors. Regardless of intention, the creation of a new city supervised by a limited number of actors and its control by military elements ensures for designers that their anticipation proves true, unquote. Or at the very least, such plans are at least bolstered by the state's desire that those plans should be realized. Put another way, urban development projects always seek to direct and encourage certain behaviors and movements while discouraging others. Even more, urban development projects such as gated communities, tourist spaces, uh, multi-use spaces such as the Gleaming Abdali project with its high-end shopping mall, expensive office spaces, and high-rise luxury apartments with spectacular, with spectacular views. All of these require that explicit techniques of policing and surveillance be built into the physical and material environment, even when it's not obviously evident or visible, and in fact, the less visible, the more desirable. A man has no central downtown squares, and its maze of streets and steep roads are not conducent to the movements of troops or heavy weaponry. But the recent improvements to the city's infrastructure have militarized capacities. The road built past the King Hussein Medical Center was widened and repaved in 2006, almost immediately following the December, 15, uh, December 2005 hotel bombings. In June of 2006, six months later, it carried a large contingent of troops and armored vehicles past spectator stands from which King Abdullah and other government officials observed the forces in a commemoration of Army Day, the first such parade in more than a decade. The road was constructed with movable, removable medians, not only to facilitate the parade troops, but also so that the road could be utilized as an airstrip if needed. New overpasses, underpasses, and traffic circles are also built to accommodate weight and width of armored vehicles, as is the Abdun Bridge connecting the neighborhood, uh, that neighborhood to the Fourth Circle. It extends a wide road that descends gradually with branches that curve west toward the airport road and east towards eastern neighborhoods of Amman. Underneath the Abdun Bridge, another widened road facilitates movement in and out of the city center from the south. Cities are also militarized in less permanent infrastructure. In normal as well as crisis times, numerous government agencies and security forces engage in what Lambert calls the quotidian militarization of public spaces. These include blocked roads, deviated passages, speed bumps, no photography zones, 
tanks and sandbags, temporary and permanent no parking zones, concrete barriers around buildings, the parking of government vehicles to create blockages or bottlenecks, and numerous other changing security points on roads and at hotels, malls, and government buildings. The irregularity of such measures and the unpredictability of their location severely disrupt routine movement of people as they seek to traverse the city on a daily basis. To connect this discussion with human security, I turn to the regime's plan for a new Amman. Jordan has aggressively courted foreign investment in its efforts to turn Amman into a kind of Dubai, and that's an analogy government officials and agencies have actually used, meaning a destination for global finance, investment, and flows of capital. To attract global capital means not only creating a city that meets some imagined vision of what it must mean to be a global city, but also, more importantly, um, making the city safe for foreign investment and its human agents through heavy securitization. Until a few years ago, the official, Jordan, the official English language homepage for, the jo for Jordan described the king as stable and secure three times in the first paragraph. <laughs> Inside Jordan, policing of different neighborhoods varies considerably, in part based on, um, re based on real and perceived association of certain neighborhoods with certain communities of people. Neighborhoods where major projects are underway are surveilled quite differently from poorer neighborhoods. Neighborhoods associated with certain prominent families or tribal affiliations um, are more, also more assertive in expressing direct critique of the regime, or even the king, than our other communities. As one longtime Jordanian activist told me, um, you can yell Yuskut Abdullah in places like Haytafila, a neighborhood in south, southern Amman that is settled largely by members and relatives from the East Bank town of Tafila, but if you do it in Dwar Firas in Jebel Hussein, the site of one of the Palestinian refugee camps, you're going to get tear gassed. Speaking about Beirut, Mona Fawaz notes that these increased security mechanisms affect a reversal in, quote, the public-private divide, allowing private control over the use of public spaces. They also establish new hierarchies defining, uh, defined according to users' competence and the various forms of capital they can achieve in this new order. Hence, the implications of security deployment may vary considerably across users, depending on one's position in the social, gender, moral, national, and class hierarchies. Unquote. Securitization today entails increased mediation by non-human actors. Security camera networks and their transactions multiply without human intervention. These also entail a speeding up of transactions. Networks of information, like internet traffic, is both human and non-human, but with an acceleration of the non-human rhythm. Attempts to map or identify blockages, or glitches, are necessarily accurate only for a moment, because the boundaries and intensities of, of securitization are always intentionally in flux. Indeed, their unpredictability is a central factor in the functioning of their power. Urban securitization is not so much a set of techniques as a range of practices that are always potentially changing. What this means, in a tangible sense, is that any moment, any particular route for traversing the city might be rendered unavailable for some opaque set of reasons, an un unknown length of time. The police car blocking an emergency ramp, concrete barriers suddenly closing a road without explanation, intersections closed for construction and repair that could last for hours or months. The cost is increased disruption of disproportionately skewed toward the lower classes and those without the WASTA to register dissatisfaction and get the problem resolved quickly. Indeed, some struggles over public spaces are a routine part of life for many who live in Amman, or indeed any urban or other settings. Regimes draw up plans about how to use and develop public space, but people always engage with and traverse spaces in their own ways. 
Indeed, on a routine basis, residents of Amman routinely interact with and resist the materiality of the built environment. When the municipal government closed the Abdali transit terminal and moved it farther out of the city, people created their own new informal hubs of transportation um, in defiance of urban planning, as Christopher Parker puts it. Similarly, it seems almost sport the extent to which residents rip up and cut out speed bumps within hours of their installation and remove concrete barriers that create blockages where they would like to traverse. People tear down parking signs that are not to their liking and um, use public spaces in their preferred manner. Urban planning projects utilize securitization to direct flows of people, vehicle, and information, but humans can be stubborn even in authoritarian regimes. For example, uh, just to give one example, despite the construction of elaborate and beautiful parks, mostly in the west part of the city, but not exclusively, many people in Jordan continue to picnic along highways and on public and private land, uh, and they do so in a manner of entitlement. Nearly any spot overlooking the Jordan River Valley is fair game on a Friday. They bring chairs, water pipes, barbecue equipment, blankets, pretty much anything you need to spend a leisurely day at the roadside. And they claim that as a right, and they insist on inserting it, an example of Harvey's right to the city. Let me conclude by attempting to cir circle back to where my presentation began. Almost there. I've argued that the notion of human security is a welcome intervention that problematizes conventional notions of security that privilege states as the preeminent site for defining and enacting the security of the nation. With the primary, when the primary mechanism for enacting human security is framed in terms of development, however, individuals then become the object of development. Neoliberal logics that were at the central, that were at the center of production and exacerbation of inequality remain unquestioned. Indeed, they're often central to projects aiming at improving the human condition. Although I gave only brief examples here, in my chapter I further develop some specific urban renewal projects and how they create dislocations and hardships for working class communities, um, while deepening and even expanding elite leisure sites and luxury residences alongside the gleaming infrastructure, inviting international capital to come and rest inside a safe, stable, secure, and fun, amen. Increasingly, securitization is deemed essential for protecting those new projects and their financiers with the urban planning projects designed in tandem with state security in an effort to shape the flows of people across the built environment and to affect the ways in which they utilize spaces. Ostensibly, public spaces like pedestrian shopping malls are privately securitized, often in partnership with state security. Few of these projects effectively improve the life chances of the poorer populations who are the ones most likely to be dis displaced, relocated, or excluded, not only as a result of these projects, but from using these new spaces. To connect with the theme of the conference, if there's anything truly new about this new Middle East, in the case of Jordan, it's not that the uprisings forced the government to enact reforms along the lines demanded by citizens. Rather, the instability of neighboring countries and the flow of refugees into Jordan, combined with the rise of ISIS, uh, to, to Jordan's north, have enabled the regime to double down on its development projects begun long before the uprisings, including urban mega projects that serve the needs of local and international elites at the expense of the vast majority of the population. Thank you. <coughs> I'm glad to see that there are still a few hardy souls that are left on this last. Uh, I've been asked to talk about human insecurity and political change. 
And I want to make it very clear that that's what I'm talking about, because as you'll see as I, uh, uh, as I speak, I'm really going to play down the importance of human insecurity as a factor leading political change, and particularly as a predictor of political change. That does not mean that I don't think that human insecurity is a problem. I don't think that it's, uh, you know, uh, in many ways I was uh, very struck by Asley's comment about an sort of an implicit attempt to, to redefine human rights or to enlarge the concept of human rights in the demands of the, uh, the participants in the, uh, 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 in the uprisings. But all I'm saying, all I'm arguing essentially, is that we have to be very careful in, very careful in assuming that the lack of human security or the prevalence of human insecurity is a predictor of political change to come. And I think we have to particularly be careful about the time frame in which we talk about this. I'll give you an example. It's a rather personal example. Uh, I left Egypt in 1985. I spent uh, four years there at the beginning of the 80s. And, and my husband was then the political, the foreign correspondent for the Washington Post there. And he wrote a series of articles when he left that predicted exactly what happened in 2011. Talked about uh, the conditions that existed and how it could not last uh, and so on and so forth. Of course, it you know, that was in 1985, and the uprising came in 2011. In other words, what I'm pointing to is that one of the reasons why uh, human insecurity is such a poor predictor of political change is that human insecurity tends to be a chronic issue, a chronic problem. And uh, political change, particularly political change, that following an uprising, following an uh, unusual event, is very rare. So that it's, uh, uh, so then I, that's my, uh, my assumption. So then I'll ask two questions. The first one is, what is the evidence of what I'm saying? That, in fact, uh, uh, that uh, hu human insecurity is a poor predictor. And I think there is a lot there. I mean, some of it is, uh, is what I just said, that, that human insecurity is a, essentially is a chronic condition for most people in the world, not only in developing countries, but even in the United States. I mean, we discovered in 2008, but we have discovered it many times before, but in the crisis of 2008, how many people very quickly lost their, you know, what gave them security, lost jobs, lost homes, lost, uh, uh, so in this, uh, so that human insecurity is really a, a very common situation. Um, there is a book that probably dates me the fact that, that I like, or I don't know if anybody still reads it, and it's Barrington Moore's book on the social basis of obedience and revolt. And one of the points he makes is exactly that, that, uh, you know, uh, that people are not in revolt all the time, and yet the conditions that would suggest that that revolt is likely would take place. What is, uh, I think there is a part of the, our assumption that lack of human secu uh, security leads to 
uh, political change or political uprising, political change of a more or less violent nature, is uh, sort of, the, if I can use a borrowed term, the anticipatory fear that this might happen. And this is a recurrent theme in all countries at all times. I mean, I think the discussion of how Amman is being reconstructed is a very, it's very interesting I, uh, along the same line. Uh, it's interesting that in Bahrain, one of the first things they did after the mass demonstration was to take out the Pearl Roundabouts. The Pearl Roundabouts where people assembled, uh, which was relatively small so that it was relatively easy to deal with it. It would be more difficult to take out a real square. But the, the, the Pearl Roundabout no longer exists has become a crossroad. So where it makes it much more difficult for, uh, for people to assemble. There are these recurrent themes of, you know, the fear of, mob, of the mob, that was a recurrent theme in Britain in the 19th century, essentially, led to a real change in the, in the layout of cities with the, an exodus towards the suburbs, essentially, the, the, the first of the exodus towards, uh, uh, towards the suburbs. Uh, so the fear is with us, but in fact the, um, but in fact it is uh, 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 the actual events are uh, uh, rather uh, rather rare. I think perhaps the people's propensity to react to mounting condition of insecurity are more likely in democratic countries where the the, uh, the cost of doing something about the problem are not so high. You know, we all know that we are all familiar with it's the economic stupid. Well, it, there is no cost involved in voting the, the incumbent party out of power. There is, in, in a democratic country, there is, you can do it very easily so that people tend to react much more easily than they would in conditions where there are real costs in turning against the incumbent regime, where this is a very, uh, the, a very dangerous thing to do. And even in countries that are democratic, it does not always work. I mean, it's a nice slogan, but it does not, it, it's not always true. If people based purely on the, uh, on the basis of economic condition, how it affects human security. Uh, in 2016, the Democratic Party should have gained. Conditions were better than they had been in a very long time. And in 2012, Obama, Obama should have lost. Uh, that, uh, uh, so in many ways, uh, you know, even in democratic country, that's not true. The question then becomes, why is it that we keep on really uh, the sort of focusing on structural conditions, on predictor, and in this case, human insecurity, as predictor of political action, essentially. And I try to divide my answer here in two parts. One is that why we as social scientists are so inclined to take structural explanations. And the second one is why government agencies, and I'll come back to this point uh, the, uh, later, are also inclined to rely on this kind of structural indicators to uh, predict uh, uh, human, uh, uh, the, the possible uh, political action. Uh, I think as social scientists, we are all biased towards a structural explanation. 
Yes, we all recognize agency, but agency always is recognized almost as an afterthought. Somehow it's not, it's not elegant to say, you know, well, people got mad. I mean, Mohammed Bouazizi got mad and immolated himself, which is certainly true, but that does not explain what happened next. And it does not explain, and in fact, if you start looking, and this has been reported a lot of times, but it, it still gets ignored that what the reason why the, uh, uh, the uprising in Tunisia succeeded and it became what it became, it's not because of the individual who got mad and immolated himself. It's because there was an organization that got mobilized into action. Uh, there had been several examples, unfortunately, of immolation in, of individuals in Tunisia before the immolation of Bouazizi. Apparently, it had become, I'm not saying frequent, but it, there were certainly several other examples before that made absolutely no difference. They were reported in the press, you know, two lines, the poor guy died, and so on and so forth, but nothing happened. And what happened in the case of Bouazizi is that UGTT, the labor union, went into, uh, got into high gear. They were trying to, uh, 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 it's a long story, but essentially three years earlier, you talked about it, uh, Joel. Uh, there had been this strike in the, uh, in the mining area where there had been no, the, where the UGTT had not supported the, uh, the miners, had not supported the strikers. It had <laughs> caused a lot of anger within the UGTT itself, and there had been, and that had forced some changes at the top. And when, uh, when Boazizi killed himself, the union went into high gear. And it, it is because of the union that the unrest moved from Sidi Bouzid, which is a pretty isolated area, all the way to the coastal towns and then eventually into, uh, into, uh, um, uh, into the Tunis. So uh, there was, you know, people acted. And they acted not just on an individual basis, but on a collective basis, and what that made. It was not conditions. Conditions in 2011 were no, 2010 were no worse than they had been in 2009 or two. You know, I don't see any, any connection there with the conditions and with what happened. The other point that, uh, the other issue is, why is it then that uh, particularly not only social scientists have this bias towards uh, using structural explanation, over, uh, overlooking at agency, overlooking at the actors and what people are actually doing, but government agencies. The CIA and other the intelligence agencies have been trying to develop indicators, and this is no uh, secret, but maybe some of you have worked on some of these, uh, uh, some of these uh, indexes because they, they commissioned them uh, the, the, you know, from, uh, uh, from uh, academics, from uh, academic institutions and so on and so forth, try to put them together. They have been trying to, uh, to put together these indicators of possible unrest, of possible undesirable events happening for a very long time. I first became aware of it in the 1960s when uh, the CIA was trying to, when uh, in African countries where uh, sort of the first generation of post-independence governance was getting decimated by military coup d'etat. So that there was a great deal of concern about how do you predict 
the possibility of coup d'etats in certain countries. And this is the first indexes that I was aware of. They did not predict very much. Eventually, coup d'etat rendered course for a variety of reasons that I'm not going to discuss here. They have been followed by a whole list of indicators and very, or indexes that very frankly are all permutation and combination of the same indicators. You know, they try to link certain political outcomes to certain, uh, uh, to certain uh, socioeconomic indicators. We have uh, indexes of uh, state collapse, indexes of state weakness, and so on. And there is a whole literature on this, which is very, it's very, it's very boring because it's very repetitive <coughs> because every few years people repeat exactly the same thing. And none of it really predicts very much, and that's why they keep on trying to, uh, try to develop new ones. Uh, if there is a, a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center right now, who, there is one every year, uh, who is an analyst at the CIA. There is an agreement, and every year one analyst from the CIA comes over for a year sabbatical to, read, to write us something and so on. And he's working on this issue of how we pre how they can learn to predict better what's going to happen, because of course, for the agencies there is a, there are consequences, right? They, uh, they get blamed essentially for not having predicted and so on. How am I doing for time? I've not been looking at you. Oh, okay. So far, yeah. no. <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right. No, I get that. Uh, so they get, they get blamed for this. So they are always looking for better. Uh, uh, and in his presentation, uh, Wilson Center fellows have a, uh, to do one work in progress presentation in the while they are there, right? And he was uh, and he was talking about his work, and he started about by bemoaning the failure of all these indexes before, and how they are still looking for better indicators. And he he came uh, and he really did not have many ideas about you can do much, but he said one line of uh, one direction that seems rather promising right now is to look at public opinion polls. And, and you say, yes, <laughs> but that means moving away. You know, public opinion polls tell you not how, not a structural condition, but tell you how people feel at that particular time. In other words, it's moving away from socioeconomic indicators, essentially, to, uh, to action. So, and I think that that's the only way, the, 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 that's really what we need to understand. It's how people are likely to act. What is the mood in a country at one particular time? I mean, one thing that we knew against, uh, Joel talked about it uh, uh, yesterday, about the fact that we knew that the unrest in the Arab world was mounting, that uh, the number of uh, strikes in Egypt, in Morocco, and et cetera, et cetera, was mounting, that there were independent labor unions that were coming out. And that certainly was something that was a pretty good indicator that something was, you know, moving in these countries. That means that we could have predicted exactly how things have, uh, uh, in fact, unfolded. Of course not. But I think looking at what people are doing, it seems to me, is a much more promising way to look in that, uh, to try and understand. But indicators, socioeconomic indicators are easier. 
they, are, they don't require interpretation. They are reasonably objective while trying to, uh, you know, to interpret uh, the mood on the country, what is the meaning of these wildcat strikes and so on, is highly subjective. And socioeconomic indicators are easy to, uh, are easy to um, apply, essentially, even by low-level analysts. I mean, it's, uh, they are not, uh, you know, you feed uh, the numbers into the machine, essentially, and out you come with some sort of, with some sort of predictors. Uh, so it's easy to understand why we rely so much on socioeconomic indicators, but at the same time, it's quite clear that they don't work very well. The final point that I want to, to raise, even if we learn to, be, to predict more what is going to happen, even if we learn to, we, if, even if we had better indicators of uh, the probability of political unrest in a country, the question is, what can we do about it? And what I would argue is there are two parts to that answer. Uh, but I would argue one is that uh, we are unlikely to do very, most governments are unlikely to do very much about it in the sense that uh, there are enough crises, present crises at any given time that I think it's very difficult to get the attention of a government about a crisis that might unfold in the future. In other words, you are putting out a fire now and you're not, you are not doing fire inspections in terms of how well prepared, uh, uh, you know, other buildings are and so on. And the other one is that we also have very poor tools for intervening in these countries. And what I would argue that one of the great weaknesses that we have, and I have seen this time and time again when we talk about uh, uh, for example, state weakness and state collapse, that we tend to take steps, not only that are insufficient in terms of the, uh, the volume of what we are doing, the money we are invest, but also that are totally inappropriate in terms of the time frame. In other words, the usual, the usual uh, suggestion is we have to invest more, more money in development, right? We need to, to do more to change these underlying conditions. The problem is that I don't think there is any way to change the underlying conditions fast enough, no matter what you do, to really make a difference. That's not an argument against assistance. It's not an argument against doing something about this, uh, uh, try to do something about these uh, problems, supposing that we know what we are doing, which is not always the case. But it's more an argument to say, if you wait until the danger <coughs> signals are there, it's too late to really to, uh, to have much of an impact. So what I'm, uh, uh, sort of just to wrap it up, uh, I would say, yes, lack of hum human insecurity is a real problem. It's a problem for the people involved. It's a problem from all sorts of point of view. It's not an indicator of political change, and it's not a good way to look at uh, the probability of political upheavals. And I thank you. Um, first of all, I'd like to echo what others have said. I thank you all for staying this late. Um, and uh, just say my special thanks to the organizers. I think this has really been, I mean, people, I know people often say this, but I don't say it unless I really mean it. And I'm not saying that my, my colleagues haven't, this has truly been a great um, set of presentations, set of panels, and uh, I'm really, I feel really, really privileged to have been a part of this. Uh, 
So I'm going to be speaking about education, and I wanted to first say a little bit about the genesis of the project because um, unlike some people who I'm really admiring and listening to their projects are in the process of being published or they're about to be submitted to the press, I'm still very early in the process on this still, uh, and as I was writing this paper, I was still trying, struggling with how I want to think about uh, what I want to write uh, going forward. Uh, my interest in education began uh, as a part of my last book, which looked at the uh, construction of state narratives because I had to look at a lot of textbooks. And uh, I became interested then in questions related to uh, not only textbook construction, but educational reform, because textbook rewriting is often a part of educational reform projects. I was really interested in the kind of contentious politics that underline are often a part of these projects of um, rewriting of, the, uh, of curriculum or, or, text or uh, school manuals. But in addition to that, for the last 10 years, as some of you know, I've been uh, engaged in chairing the uh, Middle East Studies Association's Committee on Academic Freedom. And so I've been very interested also in the kinds of cases that we've encountered, uh, the differences that we see from one country to another. And so I have been you know, struggling with a way to try and incorporate what seems to me to be a politics of academic freedom, or if perhaps it's better to say a politics of the violation or the disfigurement or the, the instrumentalization of academic freedom by various states um, in the region as part of their strategies of regime maintenance. Anyway, then I was asked to be a part of this panel and I thought perhaps what I should do, or perhaps one point of entry, is to think about the intersection of education and human security. So that's the way I've tried to approach this. So what I want to do is define human security first. I won't go over too much because Jillian has done some of that. Um, discuss the relationship between education and human security. And then I will present um, the, a bit on the Algerian case. I actually have five cases in the paper, Algeria, Turkey, Iraq, Syria, and West Bank and Gaza. And then I'll try and get through my conclusion so that you can at least see what I've done on some of the other cases short of being able to present all of them in, in that detail. Okay. So, the term human security was first used by UNDP, the United Nations Development Program, in its 1994 Human Development Report. Now, the timing is significant because the then recent end of the Cold War, in effect, opened up a kind of space for scholars and policymakers to begin to think in different ways about um, traditional security frameworks, to reconsider them. Uh, the concept of human security represented a shift both in, both in terms of the level of analysis uh, and in consideration of individual agency. So we move away from the decision-making state elite to the most vulnerable of populations. And you also focus on ensuring human dignity. And this is one of the things that really st stands out to me in discussions of human security as opposed to talking about development more generally, this emphasis on human dignity. Uh, so focusing on that as opposed to uh, a defense of the state. Uh, so this was an additional rupture, if you will, um, with the uh, hegemonic security paradigm, the kind of bombs and rockets that those of us who went to grad school a long time ago uh, were forced to, uh, to study. Okay. So it argued for the needs to focus on causes and means of redress for the insecurities of daily life for billions of people <coughs> around the world. Now, what I found interesting in engaging a lot of this literature was that with the exception of discussions of post-conflict or peace building or rebuilding, that studies of human security often didn't explicitly mention education. Um, and so that seemed a bit strange to me. And in fact, one author uh, argues, quote, while most human development issues have the potential to become human rights issues, some do not. Issues such as education, for example, even if the education system were non-existent, would never meet the threshold of causing a critical and pervasive threat. And I just don't find that, um, I, I don't find it convincing. 
Um, and interestingly, these same authors will often then, I mean, when they talk about the components of human security, they will talk about unemployment, they'll talk about poverty, talk about nutrition, all of which are closely interrelated. And they, uh, but they can, things that can be addressed, uh, at least in part, through improved education. So it seems to me that the lack of education understood, again, as sound appropriate forms of instruction, and that in itself needs to be interrogated. We could talk about that another time. But the lack of education means inferior prospects for employment, so unemployment, one element of traditional uh, focus of, of human security, and thus a, likely, a, a greater likelihood of living in poverty. Poor children are also more likely to suffer from hunger and less likely to enroll in schools. Uh, we know these conditions in general tend to have a disproportionate effect on girls. Uh, and we also know if there's one thing that people in the development field agree on, it's that education of women is one thing that definitely is, is central for, for human development. Uh, because women, as, as generally as mothers and as, with the family, tend to, I mean, the increased education gives them increased awareness about hygiene and nutrition and so on. So I think we come full circle there. Um, interestingly, the Arab Human Development Report of 2009, which was entitled Challenges to Human Security in Arab Countries, defined human security as the liberation of human beings from those intense, extensive, prolonged, and comprehensive threats to which lives and freedom are vulnerable. So this report actually does include education as a key component of human security, and I found it interesting in comparison with other reports, more general ones, um, that, that had not. Um, so, and indeed, in discussing the degree to which the Arab states had failed miserably on a lot of fronts, including the responsibility to provide um, education, it seems to suggest that the inferior quality of services in general, all of which are part of, of human security, uh, and uh, living standards attributable to the misuse of state capacity, actually call into question the very use of the word citizen to describe those who hold Arab state nationalities. Um, and in addition, of course, and extremely important for the broader MENA region, this report also highlights, and this is something which is missing from others, the threat to human security emanating from external military intervention and occupation, um, and the examples of which, of course, only increased since the report's publication in 2009. So my, what I want to try and do um, in, in this work, this longer work, and I do it here, is to focus on, um, on the state as uh, a source of, a, of violence which affects educational access, all right? But also not to forget, uh, and I think some of the comments that uh, Khaled Abu Fadl made yesterday are also uh, related to this, looking at the role of external actors and the degree to which the kind of violence that has been regularly um, visited on this region, the impact that that has had then on access to, to education for large numbers of, um, of people in the region. Okay. Um, so if we look just for a minute about education in general in the, in the MENA region, um, all Arab constitutions require the government to provide compulsory and free education, at least at the primary level. But of course, there, um, as in other areas of public policy and state commitment, the problem really isn't in terms of the absence of laws, the problem is in their implementation. The Arab Human Development Report of 2003 underlined the challenges posed to the region by the deficits in the area of knowledge. Um, it noted, uh, laudingly, the tre uh, tremendous expansion of educational institutions since the Second World War, and that's, of course, very important. But it also reported that MENA countries continue to lag behind their counterparts in other parts of the world. Female illiteracy remained high. Many children continued to have limited access to basic education. Public expenditure on education had actually declined since 1985. 
And then just a few years later, 2007, in the UNESCO Arab State Report, uh, it was argued that in order to enable the Arab states to be credible and efficient partners in achieving all aspects of human security, they needed to focus on two fronts, the first of which was achieving a balance between the role of the state and its capabilities and resources in vital areas of intervention and education, particularly making education compulsory for all children was, was one of those. So there's clearly a need for upgrading and reform in the educational systems in the region. And I think it's also clear that the dictates of neoliberalism regarding reductions in state expenditures have played a major role in undermining the quality of education in the MENA region. There has been a secular decline for most states, not all, for most states in, state, in spending on education that can only meet then the need to stretch already relatively meager budgets to cover more and more students. There's also, I think, no question, I think many of us here have probably at least visited, if not spent more time in educational institutions at various levels through the, uh, throughout the region, that working conditions in these educational institutions have been severely affected by the underfunding of physical plant in some cases, so the actual physical structures in which kids are supposed to study and learn, teacher salaries, but then also in what would seemingly be the luxuries of graduate studies and faculty research. There are other factors as well that are often cited in terms of the need for reform and upgrading in the, uh, the region's educational system. Primary among them is the, the traditional pedagogical approach, which continues to be widely used, that of rote uh, memorization, uh, with a focus on uh, rote learning and memorization. Another central target in many reform initiatives um, has been the content and organization of the curriculum itself. Uh, the rewriting of textbooks has been a common feature in these reform packages. And I think to the degree that education has been considered by you know, political scientists um, and, and maybe other social scientists over uh, the last several decades, the primary emphasis has been to look at or to look to textbooks um, as a source, a potential source of radicalization um, in the region, so partic with a particular emphasis on um, religion and uh, social studies textbooks. But the, the problems involved in educational reform are far from limited to the, context, uh, the content of textbooks, although the battles over these sorts of things I think are illustrative of larger political struggles that often obstruct broader processes. Um, to attribute the problems of the educational sector solely to state expenditures, I think, is to overlook equally pernicious sources of malaise in the region. One that's commonly cited, of course, is the continuing authoritarianism, which holds sway in, in virtually all of the states in the region, which is upheld <coughs> by coalitions of military, business, religion, or other forces that are largely uninterested in or unconcerned with the deleterious effects on society of secular decline in educational quality. Worse, to the degree that education is seen as contributing to the components of human dignity, such as free expression of identity and culture that are basic to human security, these leaderships may actually seek to thwart or severely circumscribe any attempts at educational upgrading or reform. Now, just as important um, in the MENA region, and often reinforcing domestic political repression then, are regional security conditions, insurgencies, wars, invasions, occupations, which continue to take a dreadful toll on the people of the region and their educational profiles and possibilities. Um, so again, what I want to what I what I want to emphasize here is that uh, rather than focusing on these traditional foci of educational reform, what I would 
uh, I, I want to instead highlight some less commonly examined ways, I think, that educational access and attainment, and by extension, human security, are hampered, challenged, or threatened by the current constellation of socioeconomic and political factors or actors in the region, with a special focus on um, the various forms of violence, structural and otherwise, that are visited upon society by the state or by external actors. Um, so certainly questions of curriculum, pedagogy, qualified teachers, salubrious physical plant all figure into the equation, but to reduce the understanding of education's relationship to human dignity, um, I think is, that, so to one that is solvable through more resources or better teaching methods is both superficially technocratic um, and misleadingly apolitical uh, as an approach. The basic problems are deeply political with complex domestic but often also brutal external components and drivers. Okay. So um, I was looking at one, I got the time signal before. Um, I was going to go through the Algerian case, but I think instead I'll just go to the conclusion. So I'll give you a sense of what I've done in each of the, the cases here you, so you can see um, the way that I'm trying to think about this. So um, I, as I said, Turkey is one of the cases. So let me begin with that. Um, in Turkey, education has been um, one of the battlefields in which and over which the struggle between religious and secular worldviews has unfolded. At the same time, the nationalist narrative that long dominated the hegemonic vision and presentation of the state um, that has sought to suppress alternative identities, cultural and historical narratives, particularly those of the Kurdish population, but also those related to the period of the Armenian Genocide. Um, indeed, it was petition regarding state assaults on the largely Kurdish South, that is the famous, what's become the famous peace petition, that led the state to set its sights directly on the university sector in the country. That's not to say that there hadn't been repression in the university sector before, um, but this becomes, this tends to sort of focus it in a more sort of laser-like way. So what followed and then accelerated after the July 2016 attempted coup was an unprecedented purging and criminalization of a whole class of the country's intellectual and cultural capital. Its impact has been and will continue to extend well beyond the universities and other educational institutions and cadres that have been caught up in the repression, which of course, as we heard from um, Henri this morning, of course, it's much more broad based than just the universities, but I'm focusing just on the educational sector. So that education itself and its ability to contribute to societal development and dignity has been dealt an, an unprecedented uh, blow, and it's difficult to see exactly how Turkey recovers from that. Now, like Turkey, since independence, Algeria has witnessed the ebb and flow of societal and leadership struggles over elements of identity, history, and culture uh, accepted in defining the country. High schools and universities have been key loci of protests that have often then spread to other sectors of civil society. Amazir, or specifically Kabil activism, against what has been called an Arabo-Islamic hegemonic narrative, has tracked to a great extent with opposition to politicized Islamist activism. Uh, one center of which in the 1980s in particular was precisely the universities. The Algerian case demonstrates clearly the degree to which educational issues can be manipulated or instrumentalized by state and non-state actors as part of a larger uh, political struggle and the dangers involved in attempts to suppress societal demands for an expansion of educational and in this case, the case I look at in here in particular, um, the discussions uh, and the push for the inclusion of, of Tamazight as a national language, so linguistic and cultural inclusion. The West Bank and Gaza uh, illustrate a very different type of challenge to freedom uh, I mean human dignity as underpinned by education. In the first instance, there's the phenomenon of the Palestinians' diasporic existence, which for all its richness nonetheless represents, represents a brutal fracturing of society. 
stateless or second-class citizens in the wake of the dismemberment of Palestine. Palestinian children had widely varying but generally mediocre educational experiences that further fractured their national identity and history. Post-1967, the logic of Zionist settler colonialism dictated, in fact, a marginalization or erasure of the indigenous Palestinians and their sense of identity uh, in the newly occupied West Bank and Gaza. Not only were their textbooks scrutinized for any exhortation to resistance, but all manner of administrative, physical, and military obstacles, and often violence, have been and continue to be used to intimidate, obstruct, or destroy access to instruction. In the case of Iraq, the sanctions regime imposed beginning just after the 1990 invasion of Kuwait initiated a process that would not only undermine educational infrastructure and human capital, but also cut Iraqi educational institutions off from access to knowledge production outside the country. The security slash governance situation that developed following the war with the northern, overwhelmingly Kurdish populated regions operating outside or largely outside the reach of the central government set in motion a process of fragmentation of national education and hence development and even greater achievement disparities among different parts of the country. After the 2003 invasion, the existing ethno-sectarian differences or struggles in the country were allowed to surface such that subsequent attempts to produce widely acceptable educational materials became an even more fraught process. Um, then, out of the destruction wrought by the brutal mismanagement of the U.S. occupation, there emerged an even graver threat in the form of ISIS, which, as part of its plan for a new caliphate, had its own vision of education, which it imposed on the areas it conquered, thus further fracturing, skewing, and disfiguring what constituted education in Iraq. The flight and displacement of Iraqis as a result of repeated wars um, has only further threatened the possibilities for a, for a meaningful education contributing to a sense of community, dignity, and freedom. Finally, in the case of Syria, we have a number of parallels with Iraq, a highly centralized educational system before the outbreak of what devolved into a civil war, the territorial fracturing of the country, the implantation of ISIS. In terms of the impact on education, in the Syrian case, far more of the population has been displaced, percentage-wise, both within and outside the country, including to non-Arab Turkey, where many Syrians have or continue, at the time of this writing, to receive some form of education. In the areas where ISIS imposed its control, the educational system aimed at cultivating not just a different national story, rather it sought to completely uproot the long-standing Syrian state identity narrative and replace it by using a curriculum that promoted a sense of belonging based on religion uh, and a particular form of religion, not nation state. Now it's unclear at this point how disfiguring or destructive of societal and human dignity the four-year period of ISIS rule will ultimately prove to be to have been for Syria, but the broader devastation of the wars in Syria also make it difficult to imagine what the human toll has been or how long and how much it will cost, and however, however one wants to find cost, to begin to rebuild the kind of institutions like schools and universities that should serve to underpin the bonds of trust and community, which are so critical to human dignity, human security, and a healthy national development. Thank you. Staying this long, I'll try to be high energy. I know I'm <laughs> the last one, so. Um, I started this project um, following people like President Marzuki. I was really impressed with um, doctors and physicians who were taking part in the revolution, and so I started a book on doctors of the revolution, um, which in 2011, 2012 looked to be celebratory. And then things quickly, as you know, turned dark. And I couldn't bear to look at these people who are my heroes 
become targets of the state and sometimes tortured. So I had to just put it on hold and I got into this comics project and I wanna talk about it. And now that I'm done, I'll inshallah I'll get back to the doctor's project. Um, but uh, this is the first book out of the University of Toronto Press that's combining comics or bon dessiné uh, with uh, anthropological research. And um, I had a co-author, who uh, Coleman Nye, who started out as my PhD student, who did medical anthropological work in the US. And we worked with undergraduate students, Caroline Brewer and Sarula Bao, for the art. So Lissa, the title, um, comes from the Arabic, there's still time, and we wanted there to be like Lissa fi emel, there's still hope after the coup in Egypt, and what would that look like to capture that hope, or even to insert or change the conversation through changing the genre. Coleman and I wanted to do something different, outside the bounds of an academic work. Something that could really contribute to a public discussion about health, politics, risk. And we had the idea of creating a character-driven graphic novel based on our research. Lissa is a graphic novel set in Cairo, Egypt, about two close friends, Anna and Layla, from very different family backgrounds. Their friendship is put to the test when both women are faced with difficult medical decisions at home and revolutionary unrest in the streets. So we also documented this process because we wanted to talk about what is that um, for other academics and for comic uh, crowds or fans or just general public who are interested in academic research. Um, we tell the story through an American girl, Anna, who's an expat in Egypt, and Leila, who's the daughter of the Baweb in their villa. And um, they have this friendship, despite all of the differences in their lives, and each of them has to face a different medical decision. And um, again, like President Marzuki was saying yesterday, if you're, if you're focused on disease and public health, and I had a grant from uh, Greenwall scholars of bioethics, so like kind of like this big medical bioethicist group in New York, and they really fit, they really are humanitarian and they want to do things well, but they don't think that what they do is related to politics. And so this was my way to really insert the idea of global inequality um, and to change the conversation uh, to major stakeholders. Um, and, and to talk about medical ethics in a very political way against the backdrop of the Egyptian uprisings. So Anna, the American girl we learn on the first few pages, um, is learning that her mother is in the final stages of breast cancer. Layla is like her support during this time. Um, and as we see the mother decline, we see what a you know, very uh, influential effect this has over Anna's life and the formation of her personality. Meanwhile, Leila um, studies and becomes a doctor in Egypt's Cairo University Medical Center. And um, she learns about this epidemic of kidney and liver failure taking place in Egypt. Um, through a very intimate way, her father, the Baweb, um, gets uh, kidney failure. And when she asks her professors what else can they do, uh, the, doc the doctor says, dialysis isn't a cure, you know. It's just a vehicle like an ambulance. It either takes you to a transplant or it takes you to the grave. So Layla's struggling with this decision that Anna doesn't understand. Um, and so when Anna, when Layla and her brother approach the parents and they say, we want to uh, donate our kidney to help our father, the mother says, absolutely not. 
we need you, Ahmed, to take care of the building, otherwise where would we live? Uh, we couldn't take this kind of stress. Life flows from the old to the young, not the other way around. And the mother says, I'm the only one who can give a uh, kidney. And then uh, Abu Ahmed hears, or what's his name, sorry, Abu Hassan <laughs> hears all of this and he says, no one's giving me a kidney. God in his perfect wisdom created us whole. We cannot give away what's not ours to give. Um, and so Anna just is like, there's a cure, why don't, like, Yanni, what, what's the problem? Just give a kidney, I don't get it. Why did he even find out this late? And so Layla has to explain to her the, the situation, and Anna says, well, if he won't accept someone from your family, maybe he'll accept one from the list. And again, Layla has to explain there's no list here, there's not even a law in place for organs to be transplanted. We can either come up with a kidney from a family member or we could have to pay someone for one of theirs. I like that plucking of the leaf. There's like a lot of cool symbolic stuff you can do with comics. Um, meanwhile, Anna's struggling with a decision that Layla can't understand. Anna goes to college in the US. She discovers that the gene responsible for her mother's cancer is one that's inherited. And after doing research that first overwhelms her, she decides to get a genetic test and she finds out that she's a carrier. So when she approaches Layla with the difficulty of this decision, what to do with this genetic information about her predisposition, Layla's like, what? Here we don't have enough medicine. There you've got too much. We're fighting every day just to get treatments for what we have now, let alone worry about what we might get in the future. Today is a gift from God. Why try to treat a disease you don't even have? Cool thing you can do in comics. Again, uh, Anna answers, but it's her mother. Uh, visage that we see in the answer, but I do have it. I've lived with it my whole life. So um, the intervention of forcing the political nature of understanding these kinds of medical decisions that might seem personal or might seem cutting edge or bioethical, um, we took the opportunity of the uprisings and we wanted to really capture the euphoria and the hope against the sense of caution and impending sense of doom that the revolutionaries had. This is just the first step. There's still so much more to do, knowing that it was too early to celebrate, figuring out what to do with the military presence. Um, we took the students' team, everybody who was working on the book, to Egypt to be able to capture these scenes. And, and the idea of documenting it was to create a kind of pedagogical archive then that people could use. Uh, about what it's like to completely absorb a scene and then um, depict it. We, uh, following Elliot, uh, captured the slogans. How do you, how do you capture the, the soundscape of a revolution through a comic? And we did that through writing um, the slogans and there's a pedagogical place in the back as well. So a lot of what we wanted to do was um, capture the Egyptians as actors, not be the kind of tourist uh, revolutionary scholars who descend on Tahrir Square and then take the information and use Egyptians as uh, native informants and then publish without them and leave them in front of the tear gas. Uh, our way of doing this was through visual citation to include the um, people who participated that we spoke to firsthand through the comic, and the comic also allows us um, to give them some sense of anonymity or confidentiality in this very counter-revolutionary moment. Um, there it is. And um, the idea of, uh, some of, of you guys mentioned this before, the performance and the forging of solidarity was something we were really able to, able to capture. 
Um, so this draws on my first book, Our Bodies Belong to God, Organ Transplants, a Selma Struggle for Human Dignity, in the sense of trying to trace this idea of adukht, the, the tension, which also means hypertension, the medical term in Egypt, the rising prices, the falling salaries, the crowds, all of the stresses that are contributing to what amounts to a growing epidemic of kidney and liver disease, much of it secondary to hypertension and diabetes, but some of it of primary etiology. For a lot of people, this is related to the water um, quality, water shortages, and we remember the protests before, prior to the uprising, summer of 2007, which were about the water, the toxicity of the water, entire villages that were afflicted with kidney failure. And the other thing that we wanted to do is to talk about the doctor's mismatch with the patient's view. So we have the doctors kind of shouting at the patients that I would see in a lot of my research where they would say, you're so stupid, you're, gonna, you're throwing away your whole life, you need to get a kidney, you're too young to throw away your life like this. And when I would talk to my um, PhD uh, student, Coleman Nye, she was doing research on women with BRCA in the Netherlands. And the doctors there would see these women, young women who were 18, 19, and, say, and they would say, I want a full preventive mastectomy. And they would say this often, like right after their mothers died. And the doctors would say, that's crazy. You're throwing your whole life away. You don't even have cancer. How can you think of such a thing? And and what we wanted to show is that mismatch between the doctor and the patient's calculation was about the scale of the intervention, the doctor's thinking on the scale of the individual body. So individually, it makes sense you need a kidney to function. Individually, it makes sense you don't intervene in someone who doesn't have cancer, who's perfectly healthy. But these patients are completely embedded in a social network. So in the case of kidney failure, well, they rely on the people who are caring for them. And they would have to put that person at a very big, significant risk to take a kidney out of them. In the, in the case of the BRCA gene, they were, like Anna said, living the cancer through their mothers, their maternal grandmothers, their maternal aunts. So Angelina Jolie, when she came out with this, it became much less stigmatized before these women were really stigmatized, but that had a lot to do with um, changing perceptions. The other thing that we wanted to talk about is this kind of idea of oh, cancer doesn't discriminate, it can happen to anyone, anytime. Of course, cancer does discriminate. That's why there's cancer clusters. And there's a very unequal distribution of cancer throughout the world in our own country. Poor black women have much higher mortality rates for breast cancer than affluent white women. And so looking at the inequality in health and the necessary the necess necessariness, no, necessity of political intervention to uh, alleviate that was part of our goal. Um, that same kind of equal, we're all at equal risk discourse floats around organ donation, like, oh, well, you give a kidney now, you might need a kidney later, as if there's like a pool and that, no, you know, organ failure happens at an any unequal way, it's completely socially stratified, and organs flow according to global political capital, from poor to rich, from brown and black to white bodies, from the south to the north. Um, I was really inspired by a lot of the different comics and animated. This is one of my favorites, which is by Ahmed Habash from Gaza, about a woman who envis envisages her breast cancer as strangling her the way that the Gaza occupation is strangling the whole community. And I know that comics have this notion of sort of dumbing things down, being used to teach people, but it was these kinds of comics that were using 
the medium to add more complexity, to depict interior emotions that words alone can't convey, to work with symbolism and to shift scale that really inspired us. So we were able through comics to talk about the uh, global circulation of pesticides and carcinogens and how and the irony of using the very same carcinogens that predispose people to cancer as part of the treatment to cancer. We were able to contextualize this idea of the commodification of body parts as not just being a problem of third world countries or those countries over there where they sell kidneys because they don't have proper rule of law. Well, the commodification of bodies happens here where it's completely legalized through the patenting of genetic material like Myriad Company did to the very women who offered their genes for the research then can't access it when the company goes and patents it. So what does that look like as a global trend to commodify not only healthcare but also your, the very bodies and body parts? Also comics let us do things like show the relationship between kidney failure and these larger political events. So uh, we see Abu Hassan, he's linked to the dialysis machine. The dialysis machine requires uh, electricity, right, that's, that's uh, stable. Those brownouts and blackouts really wreak havoc on the microprocessing units of these dialysis machines. The countryside was electrified through the building of the Aswan High Dam. The Aswan High Dam had very severe ecological consequences throughout Egypt, including the increase of pesticides and schistosomiasis. There was a preventive campaign to treat schistosomiasis in the 70s aided by a US public health campaign that inadvertently infected the Egyptian countryside with hepatitis C that um, makes you excluded as a kidney donation, uh, as a kidney donor, but also complicates your own kidney failure. Um, the wheat, the US wheat that's overproduced in the Midwest dumped on Egypt as a reward for Egypt pulling out of the Arab uh, solidarity against the Israeli occupation of Palestine is also an added carcinogen that um, causes nephrotoxicity. So, you know, Leila starts to understand all of these different connections, and um, that was something we were able to show through the illustration. We were also drawing on the doctors and their makeshift field hospitals. Um, adequately portraying all of that, the, the solidarity where young doctors risk their lives by participating in the protest, whether as first-hand volunteers or as protesters themselves. And again, the rendering of them in comic form um, gives them some anonymity so that they're not um, targeted by the state. We were able to draw on the graffiti artists, our form of visual citation, uh, the use of the wings of the martyr, for example, but also bringing back the wheat as the shadow and the paramedics who were saving people and also risking their own lives. We drew from um, anthropologist and human rights activist Benjamin Dix, who's at SOAS and who started an organization, positivenegatives.org, who also uses um, comics to highlight humanitarian uh, human rights issues around the globe. And um, this also allows him to use anonymity and people really love comics. They love receiving them. It's something that you don't have to also have a technological apparatus to use. It can pass from hand to hand. Um, and uh, it, it was also a way to kind of give back to the community. We went, went to Egypt and we met people, like this is the co-founder of Tahrir Doctors, who then became characters in our work. 
Dr. Dina Shukri, the forensic scientist who started documenting against state pressure to hide the violence, um, the different forms of violence. She becomes Layla's uh, medical professor. Uh, people like Alia Musallam, who wrote an amazing article about volunteering in the morgue to try to match the missing children with the bodies that appeared, also became characters. Reem Bashiri saying that for the first time she felt that as a woman and a Nubian, she could take up space in public. Um, this was the team we took to Egypt. And in, in terms of documenting it, I also drew on Adrian Keene, a native scholar who is a blogger, and she says that when you are documenting your learning process, you have to just kind of you know, not have humility and just make mistakes in public and be okay with that and, and make the learning process Okay, so we brought on you know, animators to show us how Leila and Anna were walking with us in the streets of Egypt. Um, sometimes we made mistakes, like when I told the artist, Leila wouldn't be wearing hijab yet at that age. And then I said, oh no, wait, actually she would. And she'd already done the whole page. And so we actually used this on the website as a way to talk about when do women wear hijab and when do they not in different contexts. Um, we had two different artists, each of whom took on a character, just like Coleman and I each took on a character based on our research. And the challenge was how to make each artist represent the viewpoint of a different character that then blend together at the end when they understand one another. Oh, sorry, I already did that. Um, yeah, drawing on kind of the um, iconic images of Ahmed Harara. Uh, Anna takes up photography during the revolution. The blinding of revolutionaries becomes part of the script, how the blindfold becomes the icon. Um, and then the end, trying to insert, instead of displacing the present with anticipatory fears, what uh, Lisa Wadin was talking about, what does it look like to displace the present with hope and anticipatory justice through the idiom of friendship? So we had Genzir um, compose this last page of graffiti for us. So if you turn 90 degrees, you'll see it says, Thawra Mustamirra. And Lissaha Saurat Yanayir, so bringing up Lissa again, and all kinds of other uh, works of the graffiti artists. And uh, you can see more on the website. <laughs> Thanks.